We've got to talk about something serious. <laughs> beanie babies. Who has a beanie baby? You all do. I know you do. Because I have many as well. In the 1990s, there was this craze for beanie babies. You may have been part of that craze. People lining up to buy these stuffed animals, lining up, going to stores, beating people up. That was none of you, I hope, in the 90s. Because people believed that these Beanie Babies were going to just gain value over the years. Now, spoiler alert, these things are not worth very much at all. But at the time, they thought if we just collected them all, then maybe in future generations they'd be worth a lot. And so there's this family. There's a documentary of this family called the Robinsons. And this short documentary is called Bankrupt by Beanies. The Robinson family, they collected Beanie Babies, thinking that if we just collected enough, we can send our five children to college. They would send family members to the stores, disguised as other people, to get the Beanie Babies. They would shop. Was the internet invented yet in the 90s? They were, they were trying to collect all of them by any means necessary. And they spent over $100,000 U.S. on Beanie Babies. Now, we know that these things aren't really worth anything. And this craze kind of fizzled out. And we're not beating each other up for Beanie Babies anymore. We're beating each other up for different things. But this is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale of misplaced value. That we tend to place value on things that we shouldn't. And we tend to place value on good things, thinking they're ultimate things. If only I just had enough Beanie Babies. I can send all my kids to college. It sounds ridiculous now, but at that time, the Robinson family was sincere in thinking that this would be their savior. There are things we should value. And the Bible teaches us one thing that we should value, and that one thing is wisdom. That we should value wisdom. And the main idea I want to teach you today and remind myself is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of a life of wisdom. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of a life of wisdom. And we're in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, the first chapter and the first seven verses. And this book, Proverbs, was written that we would increase in our wisdom. And wisdom is applying knowledge correctly. Wisdom is applying knowledge correctly. It's one thing to know a lot of things, but if we're not applying it, it's actually stupid. But wisdom is applying knowledge correctly. And this type of wisdom written in the Proverbs was written during the time of the Israelites. And this type of wisdom was different than the rest of their neighbors in that this wisdom originates from the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the wisdom that we want to know about. This is the type of wisdom we want to follow that we want to live. And so the Lord alone is the source of all wisdom. And biblical wisdom tells us what life is really like. 
And so the book of Proverbs is written by a man named Solomon. King Solomon, in fact. He's the son of King David. And he recognized the value of wisdom. And he asked God earnestly for wisdom. He prayed to God that he would gain wisdom. And God answered his prayer. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 3. And Solomon is directly connected to several books in the Old Testament. This one, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. We call this the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature. And King Solomon, he was, he was fascinated in a lot of things. If we read 1 Kings, uh, you'll know that he studied plants, he studied animals, he composed music. And he didn't just compartmentalize God in this box here and politics over here and life over here and food over here. It was all of life was interesting to Solomon because all of life was connected to God. And so as he's writing this book, Proverbs, he's like a father addressing a son. And he's wanting to impart wisdom to his son. And he wants his son to seek true knowledge. And so I'll read the first seven verses of Proverbs chapter 1. It says this. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance by exploring the meaning in these proverbs and parables, in the words of the wise and their riddles. And this is the key verse here. This is the key verse not only in this section, this is the key verse in all of Proverbs and perhaps the most theologically profound verse in all of the Bible. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. Other translations say, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? That doesn't sound very nice, does it? Fear. Well, we have some troubles here because... In the Old Testament, it's written in a language called Hebrew. And this word fear used in Hebrew, there's no real English equivalent. There's many words like that. Words. Many words like that. There are many words like that in the Bible where there's no English equivalent. In, In the languages that the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, they have several words for one word. So I could say, I love steak and I love my family. That's not the same kind of love, but we don't have any other words. In some languages, they have 23 different words for the word love. And so fear, what are we talking about? Well, fear is not like, um, oh no, here comes God. He's going to squash me. 
It's not like the Christmas song, you better watch out. How else does it go? You better look out. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. Tonight. He's going to crush you. Paraphrase. Is that the kind of fear? Like, God is just going to kill me. Like, the things that I've done, the thoughts that I've thought, the things that I've said, if God comes, he's going to kill me. That's not the type of fear we're talking about. We're not talking about terror or dread. Rather, it's this reverential awe, this kind of worshipful respect like you would have for a good father. The fear of the Lord is an openness to him, is an eagerness to please him, and having the humility to be instructed by him. Our main problem is not informational. It's not simply we lack information. Our main problem is relational. Our relationship with God. We either hostile to him or we are with him and we are for him. Our main problem is not informational. It is relational. Because a child who fears the Lord, a child who fears the Lord has more wisdom than someone who has memorized every book on the planet because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they use the word, Solomon uses the word the Lord instead of the generic word God because it's identifying that through Israel, God, Israel's God alone is a source of true wisdom. This God alone. Not a generic God. Not a God of the stars. Not a God of the sun or a God of the sea. The God of Israel. The Lord. Yahweh. Is the source of all true wisdom. Do you fear him? Do you know him? He is the source of all true wisdom. There was a French philosopher in the 1600s. His name was René Descartes. And René Descartes, he was considered the father of modern thought. Descartes was a philosopher and he wanted to find absolute certainty. He wanted to know what is true and how do I know what's true? He wanted to find certainty. And so Descartes, he would think, he was a brilliant man, perhaps one of the most brilliant people ever in philosophy and in modern history. And he was thinking, how do I know something for certain? So he started to doubt. I'm just going to doubt everything. I'm going to doubt everything and, and see if I can find one central point that I can say is for sure and is certain. So he doubted everything. He doubted what he saw. He doubted his senses. He doubted what he touched until he thought, well, I'm doubting, so I'm thinking. And if I'm thinking that I'm doubting, I can't doubt that I doubt. This is very convoluted. This is, this is what philosophers do. They just, they just la, 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 write it down. Brilliant, Descartes. But he is the one who founded... Because he thought, I can't, I can't look outward. I can't look outside of myself to find certainty. I have to look inward. And he's the one who said, I think, therefore, I am. In the Latin, 
cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. What he's saying is, well, since I'm doubting, I'm a thinking being, and therefore I exist, so therefore I'm certain. What does this have to do with anything? It's a great question. It's a great question. Because for over 300 years, Descartes' thought has permeated all of our thinking, even to this day. We live in such a way that we build our civilizations, we build our lives based on what we think personally. It's trusting our own reasoning and our own self-sufficiency, and it makes no acknowledgement of God. It's entirely me deciding that. Now, some might think, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about that? It's a huge deal. If we think we are the object of reason and we get to define what is true and what is right, it's total chaos. We cannot create certainty. You and I, humanity does not create certainty. Because what we call good today, maybe in 2025, Maybe that's evil. Or the things that we used to call evil, we're calling good today. Descartes gave rise to a thought called rationalism. And rationalism is this idea that if we only believe in things based on our own reason, we don't need things like the supernatural. We can just think for ourselves. We don't need God. The Bible is clear at what God thinks of this type of thinking. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Psalm 14, chapter 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. If someone says there is no God, the Bible calls them foolish, not stupid. Foolish. To ignore everything they see around them, the cosmos, their own life, the reasons for them to have life, and just ignore that. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And to live in such a way where we define everything, it only leads to chaos. And we look around you, look around you, in the newspaper, in the media. It's this difference between two worldviews, subjectivism and objectivism. Subjectivism says there is no absolute truth. Do what you want. You only live once. YOLO. I don't know what else they say now. Do what makes you happy. Trust your story. Your truth is your truth. That is nonsensical and foolish thinking. This is racist. This is not racist. This is bigotry. This is not bigotry. Says who? If it's a subjective world, we are the definers of what is right and wrong. And who are we? We are not God. We were merely made. We were made for God. And then you have objectivism. This is closer to what Solomon is trying to get at. That there's an objective truth 
and it does not care what you feel about it. It does not care what cancel culture says about it. It does not care what the media says about it. It does not care what your pastor says about it. This objective reality is true for all time because it is true. And Solomon is saying, something is true because it originates from God himself. All truth, all truth finds its primary, central, original location in God himself. That's how we know something is true. And the world does not like that. The world does not like that we come to the Bible and we say, thus, thus saith the Lord, because God has said it, I believe it. They think that's foolish. It's chaotic. I think, therefore, I am is dangerous. This type of thinking where we are the masters of our own destiny is idolatry, and we ignore God. We must turn to God, not to ourselves. We must turn to God to find answers, not to ourselves. These are the worst kind of Bible studies. If you go to a Bible study, if you've ever been to a Bible study, and maybe you've never been to a Bible study, if you go to a Bible study like this, potentially question the leadership at this Bible study. You go to a Bible study and they say, what do you think this means? What do you think this verse means? And they say, well, well, I think it means that we should adopt, adopt all poodles. What do you think it means? Well, I think it means that we should make cotton candy the national food of America. It doesn't matter what you think. We need to know what God thinks. And what you need to do is, it's called harmonizing scripture. We use scripture to interpret scripture. We don't go to our own reasoning. We don't go to our own experiences. We go to the Bible. We go to the word of God. And our selfishness hates this. We hate that there is an objective reality out there that is instituted by God. Because we want to be God. Don't we? We don't want God saying, do this and don't do that. We don't want our country saying, do this and don't do that. We are selfish. And the book of Proverbs reverses Descartes. It reverses Descartes. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge starts within God. Knowledge does not start within us. God must reveal knowledge by his grace. And we must receive it in humility, saying we're not God. And I don't understand. And I lack wisdom. And we go to the source. This is true of you have a broken down car. You got to go to the manufacturer. You got to go to the instruction book. You got to go to somewhere that knows what's going on here. You go to the creator. You go to the maker. And if you are a Christian, Dear Christian, do not be proud or arrogant because you are a Christian and look down on the world because they don't think like you. They don't believe the things you do. 
We were once blind. And by God's grace, he's allowed us to see. We should be the most humble people on the planet. We don't show up on online forums. We don't show up in public debates and just start hammering people with the Bible. We're humble and we're loving about it. Solomon wrote this book. King Solomon wrote this book. He's King David's son. And this is continuing our series, the Bible story of one giant narrative. Why are we reading about Solomon, King David's son? The story continues into the ultimate son of David. And he is the greatest expert on foolish sinners who need help beyond ourselves. And the ultimate son of David is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. In him, in Jesus Christ, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wisdom has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. You want to know what true meaning is? Learn about Jesus. You want to know how to live? You want to know how to treat your wife? You want to know how to treat your kids? You want to know how to live as a single? You want to know what to do with your money? You know what to think of sex and politics? Look to Jesus. He is the wisdom of God. He is the fullest expression of God in the flesh. And we can read about him and we can know him. And he calls us friend. My goodness. That's amazing news. Why wouldn't we want that? What is blinding us to come to Jesus? He is the wisdom of God. He is the perfect expression of wisdom. And the amazing thing is that God promises in the New Testament that if we lack wisdom, if we think, I don't know what to do here, I don't have the financial resources. I don't have the mental capability. I don't have the patience. I don't have this. If we lack knowledge, God says, you can ask me. And I'll be generous to dole it out. James chapter 1, verse 5. If you need wisdom, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God. And he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He's your heavenly father. He loves you. He he loves you so much that our separation because of our own faults, because of our own wisdom, which separate us from him, our sin, he says, I'll deal with that. I'll deal with that by sending my son. That our relationship can be restored because the perfect sacrifice of the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, and that you can be restored to him, and that we can approach him now. We can approach our Heavenly Father and ask him where we lack wisdom. And he's not going to rebuke you. 
that is profound. It's incomprehensible. We can't just show up to the prime minister's door and say, hey, I have a question. If I say, security. You can't just show up to the king's house. But God says, ask me directly. Not through one of my angels, not through one of my pastors. You come directly to me, my son. You come directly to me, my daughter. Do you lack wisdom? Let me help you. So let us then, in humility, recognize that we need to come to the Father. That we must fear Him in a deep, reverential respect. In a deep, worshipful way. And He will give us knowledge. And He will give us wisdom. Pray with me before we get into a time of communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you so much for your word that we can we can read about you, learn about you, and know you. And for you to be more real than the breath that comes out of our mouths. That we would trust you. That we would learn what it means to fear the Lord. And that we would have wisdom, not to be puffed up, but to live a life that honors you. To show people who you are. That we would see White Horse and the Yukon transformed by the gospel and we would see churches planted around the world that declare your glory as disciples are being made as people come to the wisdom of God. Thank you that we can speak to you. Lord, help us and be with us. Give us wisdom where we lack. And as we approach communion, Father, would it stir in our hearts this deep relationship we have with you and with other saints around the world. We pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen.